All right, and we're recording. So today's guest is Gabe White of Pistol Shooting Solutions. Um, I talk a lot about turbo pins. Um, there's some of the most prolific and skilled shooters that I know uh, have turbo pins. And that's just one of the, I don't know, it's a goal. Not really so much a benchmark, but it's a goal of a lot of defensive practitioners. And this is the man that created that concept. This is the man that awards turbo pens. I'm here with Gabe White. Gabe, thanks a bunch for coming on today. Thank oh, you. yeah. Yeah, Mikos, thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. I haven't been on a podcast in a while, and this one's you know, new, and you're my friend, and this is different. So so I'm real excited. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm excited, too. Yeah. So... Let's see. So the biggest thing that uh, people associate Gabe White with is, of course, the turbo pins. Uh, you can go to his website to find out more about the turbo pins, the dark pins, the the light pins. Uh, I honestly don't feel like there's a whole lot of new ground to break on that topic. But yeah. there is there is one thing that I do want to to ask you about. It is about the work ethic that's required. You know, um, it takes a ton of work to get even a light pin, you know, yeah. or even a dark pin. Yes. Um, all true. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the type of work that's required or. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so it's been interesting as I've, you know, been running this class and I've had the good, the great fortune to get to teach it a bunch of times. Like it, I think, I think we're approaching the 60th one or something like that. So it's been running since late 2016 and, and, uh, you know, whatever, about a dozen of them are a year or so, and we're up to almost 60 now. And so I've seen a lot of people shoot it or, you know, however many people that is, I've seen those people shoot it and how they've done and gotten to connect a little bit of dots between how I see them do in class on that stuff, that regime of testing versus my perception of what is their training and practice background, which, you know, you don't always know, but you can ask questions and, and you can still get some, some kind of manner of a picture of it. And it's, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the very commonly cited 1.5 seconds from a concealed holster to an A zone hit at seven yards, uh, gets bandied about on the internet as some kind of, I always feel like it gets addressed as some kind of like base standard of competency. And I've never seen it that way at all. I think that's like a, a pretty advanced standard and very, very difficult to reach. Um, and, and, and I, I have that view very specifically because back at the, at the home range, one of the, in the advanced pistol class, that is, you know, one of the two main tests, the other being, uh, from threat ready for half a second for the same shooting problem. Um, so, I've been party to, I've, I've been in the training trying to do it. I had to stay after class to make it right. This is hard, you know, but look at me now. So you can go a lot further than that. And, uh, and I know, and I, and I train people to do it now. I know exactly how much work it takes. You know, it, it's doable and it takes a bunch of work. It's normally the, the, the equation it's doable and it takes a whole bunch of work uh, from everybody us and them, and then they can do it and then they can move on from there, but it's all a big project and not easy. And so, I cite that that numerical threshold because uh, all the 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 in the in the pistol shooting solutions uh, pin award system, uh, it all has a pretty numer pretty um, formulaic breakdown, and the dark pin draw to first shot is one point five seconds. So, you know, it kind of equates to that, and that's like the ground floor pin, and then it gets harder from there, and and you know the the draw to first shot. Uh, in the light pin formulaic breakdown is 125 and then turbo is one second. And, you know, I can think very directly back to my own progression of skills and how much work I did, what kind of holster and carry mode I was using at the time. Um, and, and, you know, those, those numbers are really quite hard, but I've got to, gotten, gotten to see some of the connecting the dots a little bit. And so I think I've seen that, you know, people who, uh, do a, a significant amount of work, really get themselves well-founded well and built up as a defensive practitioner in the defensive world that includes measurement and not like part of the defensive world that doesn't include that. Because if you don't measure it, you're not going to get there. You just, you, there won't be any, any pressure on you from anywhere, yourself or anywhere, uh, pushing you in the faster direction. Uh, but assuming that you, you know, do tactical training that does respect the, the existence of time and measuring it a little bit, at least, um, you know, you could, you can get to that one five with a lot of work. Um, generally, you know, the better practitioners who have really been doing a lot of work can get down to the one twenty-five drawn first shot. And usually, honestly, um, that's about where a quality appendix practitioner often is too, is they're about, you know, they're, they're well under one five, but they're also usually well above a second. It's like, I'm usually seeing consistent one to one five, you know, one twenty to one fifty out of a lot of appendix carrying very good practitioners. And then, you know, if you are 
very, very, very incredibly good from strong side concealed. You might be able to get, be getting down to a second from there. Um, and that's very doable with appendix with a lot, again, still with a lot of work. Um, but it all, it's all, you know, it all varies across context and circumstance though, because it's real easy to feel like you got a certain level of draw when you measure it in dry fire or you do one shot draws where the grip is not taxed beyond the, beyond the one shot. And frankly, it really is easy. You know, it, it's easier because you don't end up having to really quite build the grip the same way that you do for life or for, uh, for multiple shots or, or a more complex thing on multiple targets. And so, uh, it, 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 it's easy to con yourself with all of it and, and to feel like you're faster than you are when you put it into a circumstance where it's like, you know, you've got whatever semblance of stress you feel for an, an on-demand shooting circumstance that is easily accessible. So obviously not a fight for your life, but, but any of the other circumstances, testing or competition or something where people are watching you and it'll be measured and it's designated to, it will count and you care. So, you know, those are the conditions necessary in my mind for, for, to get people having a stress response um, and, and in a multiple shot drill to actually no kidding, you know, be able to throw down a certain draw time for that really is a different thing than what I might think I measure in dry practice or what I measure in, you know, calm by myself, just slinging a bunch of one shot draws, trying to see, you know, how far I can push the time down and, and hopefully hook up with the hit. You know, those are all different things. And, um, so anyway, so the, the, the threshold to get back to, sorry, to get back to your like actual question, um, you know, I feel like dark pin is pretty hard. Light pin is normally the product of somebody with a really good foundation who has also done a bunch of work on their own out of, for their own reasons. Um, usually, uh, that's, that's, you know, what I, what I see it take to get there and turbo turbo ends up being, so turbo is a lot, uh, is enormously more simplistic than if somebody classified as a GM in USPSA. So it still isn't the same thing, but it, insofar as the tasks measured, the numerical thresholds in turbo are somewhere in the ballpark of like what you would have for master or grandmaster level of performance. It's just on a really narrowly focused drill that I've, you know, decided is that I, that I've judged to be very relevant to self-defense and a good vehicle for practice for self-defense. So we use it in the class, you know, use those drills in the class. Um, so GM is greater than turbo, like, enormously so because of the relative complexity you have to do in order uh, on the even on classifier stages to get gm so like that's definitely harder but as far as insofar as what it measures it's a, it's a similar threshold and so i was having this conversation with somebody recently and i think i you know the, the way i would say it today is that those kind of performance levels probably require a time of obsession in the practitioner like that's probably what it takes it's probably going to take something that People who are not obsessed would call obsession. Uh, people outside outside our little world who aren't also really into it, they would be like, "That's obsession, man! You're dry fire. You got you got to wake up and dry fire, and then you have your lunch break, and so you cram like this little pitiful amount of food, or just skipped lunch because who needs that? And 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 just dry fired instead, and then you came home and you like had to shove your family off for an extra hour here because now I have to dry practice again, and and times every day, times you have to go to the match. You just have to. You have to do it if you don't do it it's like what is going on this is not going to work right obsession obsession and and that's <clears throat> it's been this really interesting thing to navigate because i think uh you know people have different amounts of that motivation at different times and uh but obs ob I, how do you get there obsession that's how i think you get there i think you get there by obsession in large part that's the answer <laughs> <laughs> i can i can see a lot of myself in that answer yeah like for a yeah. while I still, I still, there's still a piece of me that's really very much obsessed about yeah. it because I don't know. There's this, um, there's a general expectation that I, if I'm going to carry it, then I'm carrying it because I'm going to have to use this thing. Yeah. And that, that time might have to be today. So, yeah. um, one thing that I have noticed about folks that are a little bit more obsessed like us is that, um, the folks that end up being a little bit more successful are either highly driven or they shoot uh, some kind of competitive shooting sport. They shoot matches of some sort or both. Um, well, I think they're connected. So like, so like if you, if you allow yourself to go earnestly engage in competition and then you enjoy it and then, you know, you get, you get into playing the game 
for its own sake, which is, which is extremely productive. I'm not saying that as some kind of criticism. That's how I think people should do it. Cause that's how you get the actual benefits from it. It isn't going to give you everything. It's not going to be practice at tactics. It's not going to teach you tactics. It'll be not good for that, but it will be great for other things like technical performance and setting a really high bar for what is good and, and all that stuff. So I think, I think that like the, the buying into competition is what is in large part is what helps form a person's very high bar threshold of expectations for what is good and then obsession follows so that they can reach and exceed that and improve from there yeah that makes sense that makes a lot of sense so let's see yeah i think a, a lot of that has to do with the fact that you do have classifiers you do have a class and there's there's a pecking order you know you get to yeah. see where you stack up <clears throat> yep. so yeah and i think you're right in that you know um uh, it's particularly harder to pick up GM and USPSA or even, you know, like distinguished master and IDPA, which is about, you know, it's a, it's a similar level of achievement. That's so much harder than getting a turbo pen. Um, I would think so. I think out of, out of, so I, like out of my shooting resume, you know, I've done these things, uh, shooting accomplishment stuff. I personally found classifying M and limited to be the hardest one. Like oh, that's wow. the one that be, that was, that's the one that bedeviled me, but me by far the most, like yeah. significantly so. That makes sense. That makes a whole lot of sense. So, yeah. Um, let's see. Let's skate over to dry practice just for a second because I have some more questions. Yeah. And, you know, like particularly about how you got started in shooting. But, you know, before we go over there, uh, just a little bit about dry practice. I, there's already a lot of information out there about Gabe White. Like you can, you can look on his website. Uh, you can look at Pistol Shooting Solutions and you can find a lot of the information there. Um, uh, you can also look at some of the other podcasts that he's done. I think he's done one with dry fire ninja. I think he's done a couple others. Um, but, uh, uh, one thing that I do want to ask about where we haven't had a whole lot of, uh, broken a new, new ground is there's out there myself included. I was there for a while where I wasn't really sure exactly. I wasn't sure about the form that I had in dry practice, you know, like, so like what you were doing or bit. how you're standing, um, just, you know, uh, avoiding training scars. Uh, yeah. a big question that I had was, I wasn't sure if I was doing it correctly. I wasn't sure if I was, um, I wasn't sure if what I was doing would actually bear fruit yeah. and your class, your, you know, pistol shooting solutions classes, um, they fill in a lot of those gaps, but is there anything else I can do to supplement that? Like, are there any resources or books that I can use to help me drive practice to, you know, maybe a similar level or a higher level? Um, well, so for dry practice, I think one of the, one of the most cut and dried recommendations that can be made would be by the, uh, by, by Ben Steger or Steve Anderson's books or both, and then just follow the directions, you know, do the program as asserted and it will undoubtedly create huge positive benefit in you. I'm, I'm sure that it will. Um, so that's like one very cut and dried, simple answer that's easy to give. And frankly, I think it's a really good answer. I really do. Uh, those guys have done an awful lot to create a ready-made program that you can just, you know, open the package, open the book, follow the directions, and you're going to get a whole lot better. And you don't really have to give it a whole lot more thought than that, other than faithfully doing what it said. Um, now, uh, otherwise, you know, I suppose, we, we, you know, you've probably heard from me most of my most of my take on what should one do in dry practice. Um, but to throw a few things out there, I think that. Uh, I think that a huge amount of raw trigger work is really, really helpful, uh, especially if you are practicing for the purpose of using a gun that doesn't have a super mega easy trigger. Uh, anything that in the defensive world outside of a single action gun, you know, if you've got a, even a modestly lightened striker fired gun trigger of, you know, I would argue, you know, three and a half pounds or more. And I, I personally would prefer a heavier trigger than, than that by a little bit. Um, so, you know, this is kind of like below the threshold that I would personally pick for, for defensive use. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, if you're shooting anything, that's not a super mega light trigger. I think that there's a lot of benefit in a ton of raw trigger pressing. I really do uh, strong hand only support hand only and two handed. I, I think it's all extremely helpful. And, uh, and I think that square one uh, 
is the perfect trigger press, but that is only square one. You know, you, need, you always need to have your, a, a deep connection to firing your most careful shot because to relate it out to the world, I don't think so. I don't think it really takes all that much human chaos uh, that you get out in the world in real situations to create difficult enough conditions that the only credible way to address it is your most most careful shot and that less than that will be not careful enough so you have to have a super deep connection to that but that's also just square one and square two through it like infinity is to uh, duplicate that perfect trigger press or as closely to it as you can which is really the practical answer it'll be as closely to it as you can uh, probably uh, across more and more difficult conditions uh, most particularly with regard to compressed time. So pulling the trigger as close to as well as you can with that square one perfect trigger press, but in more and more compressed time frames, um, and very quickly uh, the time frame being defined as as quickly as you can move your finger. So progressing toward that, your most careful trigger press as quickly as you can move your finger. There's a camera. That is is what you. Uh, is ultimately the thing that needs to be practiced a whole lot. Um, so trigger work would be really huge. And then in large part, I think people need to just have perspective on what they need and to push themselves in the direction that they need to go. So if there's a person who just cannot get the lead out, they just are slow and pokey. It's just the way that they seem to be with shooting and they just can't seem to, can't seem to throw off that yoke of time and, and, and be able to, proceed through what they have to do without mental friction and without, without conscious thought on technique. Anyway, they're slow, right? If the problem is you're slow, use the timer more and use it more harshly, have harder times that are harder for you to reach and you have to work harder to reach them. And if you're the opposite person, if you're the person who, you know, you can move plenty fast, but you just cannot like shoot a clean drill, cannot shoot a clean stage or something to save your life, then that person would be usually well advised to practice just focusing on quality of, of execution and not using the timer or using it, but in a gentle manner that is easy for them to meet as far as the time component goes. Uh, and then they just focus on quality of execution and there's, and there's infinite degrees in between those two. Uh, but those would be kind of like the two bookends of extremes um, that I define for practitioners. And I, and I think that big key for dry practice is to be honest with yourself about what you need and give yourself that push yourself in that direction. And, Further, really important to recognize it is very normal to experience a significant dry to live fire performance gap uh, that you do not normally measure out the same way in those two settings for the same practitioner at a given skill level. You just don't. Uh, and I think that that's because of calmness um, and, and, and conning yourself. Like on some level, it's really hard to not con yourself in dry practice and, and also calmness. Uh, when we're measuring tenths and hundreds of seconds of performance or little fine differences, you know, the, bu the bullet hit the line or it's a millimeter out or whatever it is, we're talking really, a really, really, really fine graduation uh, between and, and delineation between success and failure in the activity under discussion. And calmness has a lot to do with that. It has a lot to do, I think, with precision of movement and ultimately being more efficient in hundreds or tenths of seconds. So I think, you know, you got to expect that there will be a gap. And, and you know, back to a, a, an old lesson that Ben Steger stated many years ago uh, is that you just you need what you need to define as success in dry practice is that that it is making you better. Uh, so when you go to live practice, if you measure out not the same as dry practice, that's to be expected. But if you're measuring out better than you did in live fire previous to that now having done a bunch of dry practice that is success that's what you can expect and should define as success um and that and that also means that you'd need to regularly review in dry practice what you actually do uh you need you you need to measure it if you sorry if i said dry uh, in live practice if you uh if you just dry fire dry fire dry fire and don't live fire and then you come back to live fire sometimes people have a real nasty surprise when they discover that they have not been dry practicing in a way that translates or is valid or worse you know makes them their skills worse has messed them up and they had they didn't recognize that because they aren't live regularly live firing in order to check the validity of the dry practice that they're doing which is an important component you know you need that ongoing live fire frame of reference and this is why it's difficult to give the advice to somebody brand new that you know 
dry fire. It's great. Go forth and do a whole lot of it until your, you know, your eyeballs and elbows bleed or whatever. And you break the gun because <laughs> it, it's, it's extremely possible and likely they're going to do some bad stuff to themselves when they completely lack a live fire frame of reference. So live fire development is, 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 is pretty helpful and informative for dry practice. That doesn't mean somebody new couldn't do it well, just it, that that's going to be tougher due to the perspective issue. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, we talked about like breaking the gun. That one thing that there's was one nugget that I find particularly interesting is that you've broken what, like four slides now? Four like, yeah. dry practice. Mm -hmm. So how does that even happen? Like how do you bust well, a slide with drive practice? Sure, sure. So it's really easy to see a picture of it. It's happened to plenty of other people too. You can like uh, internet search uh, Glock broken breech face and you'll see pictures of the exact same thing. So you know when you look, you lock the slide open and you look at the breech face and you see the circular marking from the case head uh, being pushed against the breech face many times, right? You know, that circular marking where the firing pin comes out. Um, the firing pin, you know, in dry practice is going tick, tick, tick on the inside of the back of the breech face, pushing forward on the breech face in the firing pin channel. And it's just going tick, 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 and then times a great many repetitions. Eventually that round circular uh, imprint of the case head on the breech face busts out forward. That same circular part busts, is like the weak spot and busts out forward. And I know, I've come to know when it happens because you can feel it on the last, the last trigger pull the gun ever has is the best one. You're like, oh, that trigger pull was like too good. I think this gun just broke. And then when you can't rack the slide because the breech face is obstructing the, the uh, top of the chamber, uh, then from coming down, then, then, you know, and so I like always have to like yoke hand it and I can get it open. And, and the first one I broke was the very last day I was a, I used to be of the uh, very Timmy mindset of, you know, one gun for everything, one for all the training, the practice, the carry, the comp, all of it, everything. Um, and, and then I broke my gun five minutes before it was time to walk out the door and go to work. And I wasn't going to be able to fix it because it was the slide that broke. Fortunately got plenty of nine millimeter you know, plenty of the Glock 17. So just like get out another one and put that one on and that's fine. But you know, that was the very last day I was a one gun for everyone person. Since then I have the, the practice training match gun and then the carry gun that's identical that just doesn't accumulate the wear and tear. And by the way, all the ones, so, so the four, four broken slides that like that one uh, seventeen and three thirty fours. It sounds like a lot, and I suppose that it is, but it's there's also a big assist in there uh, for clip from clean fire ammo. So the range the range that I work at, the range that I've shot at for a long time, historically not always, but historically stocks clean fire ammo, which has a different chemical composition in the primer to put less you know nasty stuff in the air uh, when you shoot it, and uh, it is, is known to burn the breech burn hotter and it erodes the breech face worse. So there's some amount of assist in there from the clean fire ammo that I've shot out of those guns. I've shot a pretty fair amount of it. Uh, four still sounds like kind of a lot, you know, I, I guess maybe it is. Um, and they were all gen threes. And since I've been shooting the gen five, since the gen five seventeen came out, I have continued with that, that arrangement of, I have one gun that has accumulated all the wear and tear. And although I definitely don't practice as much now as I did at one time, um, I, it's been since they came out. So what is that? I think, uh, you know, December, 2017 or 18. So it's been several years and I have yet to break a gen five. So I don't know. I, I don't know that this is the case. This is like self-serving speculation, but you know, the first slide that I broke, I just called up the customer service number and sent it back and I got a new slide. The latter three all went back through like the main, uh, sales manager for the Western U S and I know he sent them back to the R and D division of Glock. And so I hold out some small hope that my broken breach faces help them make a better breach face on gen five. And that's why it's not breaking. I don't know that that's the case. I, I hold out some self-serving hope that it could be. <laughs> well, me and other Glock owners, we all thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I thank Glock, whatever the reason is it's a uh, Glock, Glock made an, made an awesome gun there. They have a lot of awesome guns. I like the gen five very well. Yeah, it's pretty awesome stuff. I uh, let's talk about like uh, how you even got into shooting in the first place. Is that... Yeah, can I can I go grab some more coffee here real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. I'll be right back. Just like one minute. Yeah. Right back. Yeah. Thanks again, Gabe. Because. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you because you know you're giving me a chance to you know. <laughs> Good. So, yeah. As far as coffee goes, tell you what, man. Like, there's this uh, this local like this this local place that does their own stuff and I've kind of been hitting them up and they've been doing a really good job. So, um, I walked in there and like they actually had Swissmas on the little hey. thing. 
And nice. I was like, it was the first time I ever heard of it. So I was like, oh, I'm going to try it out. And dude, it turns Folgers into like Starbucks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah nice. That's a, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's a good idea. Oh, man. All righty. So what do you think? We ready to keep going? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. So, so the way I usually do this is like there is a little option up here to like, let's see. There's no pause button. I know it sounds okay. weird, but so what I just do is I just keep recording and, you know, when yeah. I'm done, I cut that little piece out. Yeah. So, yeah. All good. All righty. So let's talk a little bit about how you got started in shooting. Um, and I'm really kind of speaking towards like the type of folks that have never really uh, gone to a class or never shot a match. Like if you could talk to it in in terms of that, then, you know, that'd be great. I'm, I'm really interested sure. in that. Well, I mean, I guess that all starts when I was a little kid. So this is this is like, you know, explanation of, wow, I feel like most of the things that I have done in life, honestly. So I come from hippies uh, and I was, uh, you know, from a, the first place I lived was, you know, next to a marsh near a river down on the Oregon coast. And uh, it just was readily apparent to me from the beginning um, I mean, from literally from the time that I can remember the earliest thoughts that I remember, well, many thoughts, but you know, some of the earliest realizations of anything at all that I can remember was, you know, you look out the world look out the window and you see the natural world and stuff lives and stuff dies. And it does that based hugely on its ability to protect itself. And, uh, you know, we'd, my mom would take me, you know, we'd go walk down on the marsh and there's, you know, there's dead stuff around because it's a, it's a wild place, right? There's like the dead fish that you can see down in, in the, in the river and that's cool. And, you know, there's crabs running around down in the bottom of the river and that's cool. And there's, you know, birds and all kinds of things. And they're all looking around trying to eat each other. Um, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're trying to continue to exist. And so, I mean, from the time I've been a little kid, I've always, seen self-defense and 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 so then and i guess this is also where the you know comes part of partly where that comes from hippies parts uh part comes in is is you know i think um i consider you know we don't we don't usually talk about it in these terms in the shooting world but especially as a uh, truthful but not obvious answer that i give to people outside the shooting world this is human rights work that's what this is. All of it. It's at different levels. It's addressing different audiences. That's all true, but it is all human rights work. I believe that the most fundamental human right from which all other human rights are derived is the right to protect your own physical body. And that has to include the care, the ownership, access, and carriage of the tools attendant to that right. Because if you don't include that, then that means the right belong, right, that right to, uh, belongs to the many, the mean, the large, the male, you know, instead of everybody who is not that the biggest and the strongest or banded together, right? Then it only belongs to them. Um, so, you know, that's like my deepest statement of personal philosophy from the time I've been a little kid. I, that's, I, I've always believed that very, very strongly. And so, and, and then combined with you know, I could see even as a young kid, what, it, where I was from, who I was from and what we were like. And I'm, you know, I'm nice. I'm like, and, 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 and if you take it back to like when I was a kid in school, I'm like, you know, the smart kid and into art and stuff like you would expect coming from hippies. And, um, and knowing I, I could see that that was the way that I was and where I came from, from by virtue of nurture and that if I did not fill, if I did not fix the weakness, then I would just be very weak and unable to, unable to provide for myself. Um, and, and in this sense, in the self self-protective sense, but, but effectively that that was a major, major personal via both nature and nurture. Cause it's, you know, I'm like, I'm skinny and I'm nice and I'm not big and mean and don't want to hurt anybody. Um, that if I didn't fix that about myself and develop those capabilities, then I would have none. And then that, and, and I think from the time I've been a little kid, I think that's a very foolish place to allow yourself to be if you can help it. Um, so here I am, you know, decades later in huge part, the entirety of my life having been spent, you know, in whatever way, slowly and steadily correcting that personal weakness. 
like to the point that here I am teaching it, which is completely weird because, you know, you, you know how there's these, there are these established routes to kind of become a minor firearms instructor. Usually, you know, you go to a school, whether whatever kind that is, you know, whatever school that is, usually you go to a school long enough, do a good job. There'll be usually often some route that you end up getting recruited into being a volunteer instructor there, whether it's in a small, very tiny role or a really big role, you know, depending on the school, but that that's like a really common thing. Right. And so there was a time when I was, I was, I was, I started doing that out of the ulterior motive of wanting to continue to be present for training and benefit from it, but can't just in the, in the forever picture, pay a couple hundred dollars a day to do it. Right. Like 150 tuition and then ammo and stuff like that's, I just, I, you know, I can't pay for that forever, um, but would like to continue to be involved in training. So that was kind of a way to do that. And then I I remember the moment that, you know, my, my predecessor, Carl, uh, at the, at the home range here, he's unfortunately passed away in 2010, but it was about 2008 or nine. And I was, you know, way into the tactical training program, doing a lot of that stuff. Hadn't started competing yet, but was kind of starting to improve technical skills insofar as I knew, knew to do that. And, and he, and we're at dinner after the evening training group. And he looks at me and I don't remember what was being talked about that, had relevance to this. I think it was like, you know, it was like the, what do you want to do when you grow up conversation? And obviously I was already grown up ostensibly, but, but coming from hippies, I have like no professional ambition whatsoever. Um, so, so, so I'm like, what do I want to do? I don't know, have a job that pays the bills and doesn't bug me too much. That's what I want in, in total honesty. That's what I want. That What kind of job I want? That's the kind of job I want. Right. So like, that's, you know, different than being a high level professional at anything, but that's uh, you know, you have some nice things out of that. You have a very nice quality of life other than money um, is what you, is what you get with that. But anyway, that all aside. So he looks at me and he goes, do you want to be a firearms instructor? And he's like, trying to recruit me to work at the range and i'm like ah no i don't know no i don't know because i love it but i shouldn't be teaching this don't you you should get you know get somebody who's had who who is you know had a whole profession involving you know using using guns and has had to actually use them probably they should be teaching it why should i be teaching it and and so i was pretty pretty reluctant but it was you know ultimately kind of encouraged and cajoled at his his and other people's behest of like no 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 you do a good job so you should do it It, like it doesn't have to be more complicated than that uh you do a good job so you should do it so come come on in apply for the job you know so that was that was kind of how i got started was kind of kind of recruited kind of encouraged and ultimately is just this is where i'm at right now in this whole lifetime of correcting that weakness and at some point you decided to start shooting matches like, uh, what got you into the competitive scene? I have to credit, uh, Todd green, Todd green, uh, at the time. So this is about 2008 ish, 2009. Uh, I had been given in early training, a, a drop of poison about competition. Uh, not a lot, just like a little bit. And it took me a couple of years to kind of see through that and unlearn it. And Todd was very key to that. So right about that time, I kind of had that drop of poison. I kind of knew that I had it. I was kind of starting to examine that and think about whether that was worthwhile or valid or not, or even accurate. And in part, it was driven by Todd Green posting on the internet. This was back when he was on M4 Carbine. Uh, he would post the numbers from the fast test. And so, it's, you know, you can know what the fast test is. It's really easy to look up the fast, sorry, fast, not fast test. That's redundant. Uh, the fast it's really easy to look that up um, and see, uh, excuse me, see the, uh, see the performance levels uh, or the performance thresholds there. And then to see Todd doing it. And by then I had kind of, and see the numbers that Todd was putting up um, with carry gear from concealment. And that was completely inspirational to me because I was just right about then starting to have a clue about, what are the actual numerical performance thresholds in terms of hits and time associated with like an upper class competitive shooter, a master grandmaster, or frankly, you know, at this point, you know, a B class shooter looks like they jumped out of the matrix compared to, you know, normal people um, or by normal people's perceptions. That's like thoroughly the case. You know, I like this. So I just saw John wick this year, right? Like the, the, I'm, I'm only like 12 years late or whatever. Right? So I finally just saw it and I'm like, Hmm. Yeah. He looks reasonably credible. They're like, people don't have a clue. Like if you had like an actual, what we know as a really good pistol shooter, um, that like really good and has, you know, some defensive uh, capability as well. And is not, is not, you know, clueless as far as tactics goes, John wick, is like kind of like well you got it done you know good job for you that's the he was he was he was pretty competent but like amazing no 
No, not, not amazing. Just, uh, you know, did a, did a perfectly fine job, perfectly fine job that, you know, anybody with like a few days of handgun training in theory could maybe do if they had the, the mental part to do it. Right. Um, anyway, so, uh, I kind of for, forgot where we're going now. Where are we going? <laughs> how you got into how you get, how you got. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Todd Green's posted on the internet about, about, you know, here are my numbers from the fast I shot today. And here's my numbers from the fast I shot yesterday and all this stuff. And it's really good. Really, really good. Like it's, it's like, it's like, this is, this is ballpark master grandmaster level of performance exemplified by somebody using their gear, their carry gear from concealment, which is exactly just the crystallization of, to me, the point, um, because another another major aspect of my life that I that I've done probably one of the other huge strands or pillars of life to characterize it as is my whole life is hugely composed of there is some something or activity I come to like and be interested in. So I want to learn to do it. So I learned to do it as well as I can figure out for like a couple of years. And I keep going until I lose interest, which is typically one point five to two years in though that comes from my youth when I had more disposable time. And so maybe it takes longer for me now. I'm not sure, but at whatever point I've gone through like the steep part of the learning curve, and now it's going to get to that part where you're going to grind out a quarter, quarter of a percent after quarter of a percent after quarter of a percent for like a really, really long time. That is when I typically lose interest because it feels like the uh, numerical advantageousness of the steep part of the learning curve has been lost. And kind of like if we were to adapt the phrase from jujitsu of once you're a blue belt, you're just training to beat the other grapplers. Um, I, I have felt and seen that specific um, dynamic, not in jujitsu, because I'm not that far at all. It wasn't, was not, and am not that far in jujitsu, but the phrase applies just as well to any number of other things. So like, this is like insight to the generalist versus specialist thing. Um, so like sometimes in our world, we talk about stuff like, Hey, so like how good is say a Delta person with a pistol? Well, they're probably really good. Um, but and that's in the big picture, but that is like one small piece of what they have to be good at, right? They, they, can, they cannot be a pistol specialist in a, to the exclusion of the other necessary skills that they, that they have to have. They got to be good at 80 things or however many things it is that they have to be good or at least competent at so that they can get to the fight, have enough energy to fight the fight, hit the target in the fight, probably not with their pistol if they could help it, right? Like probably with a different gun, but maybe if it got down to the pistol, then maybe it's with the pistol, right? And I'm making all this up. I don't think any of it's untrue, but you know, I have no personal knowledge of any of those, what those guys really do. But my point is this, they got to be uh, good at a whole bunch of things. And if they come up short on any of those things, game over, they cannot, right? So they have to be much more of a generalist than I have to be. I can be like a complete and total specialist with a handgun. I can be like mega good with a handgun and land navigation what's that that's that's fine for me not fine for a, a, a real soldier but it, you know it's maybe fine for me um so uh anyway uh you know the performance levels that people have in in competition um uh, that kind of also folded into my overall life interest of becoming very good at things or trying to be until they lose my interest and then trying to be good be as very good as i can at something else times however many times i've gone through that in life um and shooting shooting is the one that honestly has persisted the longest and i think that's i'm not i'm not sure why totally sure why that is i've got a few ideas but but shooting has definitely persisted vastly beyond that one and a half to two year time frame and i think it's partly because it's become a profession and it's kind of supported and enjoyed by other people and that helps me you know continue with it and um and now I'm an adult and I have to work uh, and I am not a youth who did not have to work like I was during that whole formation of the, it seems like it takes me a year and a half to two years to get through the steep part of the learning curve. So maybe I just, you know, don't have as much time now, or maybe I've taken this to a way deeper level. I kind of think that that's, that's also true. I think I'm better at shooting than I've been at any of the other things that I've been good at. Um, but th so, so those things all kind of came together about 2008, 2009. Todd's kind of like showing the example of what you could do with carry gear from concealment. I'm becoming more, aware of the numerical performance thresholds associated with an upper-class competitive shooter and thinking of like, hey, that would be great to be able to exert that with my carry gear from concealment combined with my, a huge part of my life is find something that I love, become as great at it as I can until I don't love it anymore and then find something else to become great at and love. 
man, where's to live by? Honestly, <laughs> seriously. Um, yeah, that is phenomenal. Let's see. As far as as far as stuff that I love, like another thing that I love from Gabe White is your music. Like Gabe White actually, <laughs> Gabe White mixes music, and it is like the music that he mixes is so chill. Like you actually do EDM music. Like, can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about? Yeah, you know, like how you yeah. got into that, and you know, like the type of stuff that you like to mix. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so what I what I do is produce. Uh, uh, house music it's a certain form of house music and i'll ex explain that because i would expect it to be a, a an esoteric genre designation for people watching a gun podcast though it you know it's always really surprising and fun when i find uh find actually a fair amount of fair amount of people there's always one or two or six in each class that are like kind of into it so so that's cool um so basically how i got into this is uh well, as a kid and teen, I used to listen to, uh, you know, rock and metal and punk. And it was always music that, you know, there was there was some amount of I was kind of kind of on some level did like the poetry aspect of music. But really, I almost never really listened, truly fundamentally listened to any music for its lyrical content. That was weird for me. Normally, I listen to it for the sound and the power and the energy and the rhythm and things that you would get in like a fair amount of punk music a fair amount of alternative music. Um, certainly a fair amount of metal, a lot of metal has that. Um, there was, you know, uh, uh, I used to, you know, love Metallica and there was a time I listened to, they listened to a lot of punk. Um, there was a time I listened to, you know, Guns N' Roses and that was always a, a kind of a, a weird, weird, uh, thing for me to listen to because the sound was great i hated their lyrical content but it was like it sounded really good so i don't know you know where does that leave me listen to it sometimes so i was used to listen to that stuff and then when i was about 18 or 20 um now nah, about 20 20 21 22 somewhere in there i had a couple friends who had you know kind of gotten into electronic music and so i heard some of it from them it was also becoming more mainstream and i would see it on some tv commercials they had um they i remember uh, at the time my head was turned by it was, it was literally, it was a stupid old Navy commercial, but they had this whole gang of dancers with um, the crystal, the old crystal method track, busy child, which was an awesome track at the time, very energetic. And it was like this whole, it was just like this radically other sound that was not necessarily about lyrical content. And in some electronic music has some amount of the, the dirty humans in it. But I, what I always used to like was that it was like beautiful math without the dirty humans tainting it in large part. Uh, is was a thing that I always used to like about electronic music. So anyway, so so all those kind of like things hit me hit me all around eighteen or, or about twenty or twenty two or so, and then I started listening to electronic music and really have never looked back. I mean, I still like those other kinds of music too, but that's like I just listen to all electronic music now. Um, so so I don't uh, mixing is a sub part of the process of the overall production process. Um, you kind of have. Uh, you could divide it into a number of subparts, but basically you have the production process and then the mixing process and then the mastering process. If you were to break it down into, into a really, really rough uh, division. Um, and the uh, it, it's probably worth five or 10 words about the genres. So electronica would be the biggest genre. And down from that is the very, very large genre EDM, electronic dance music. And sometimes that's kind of considered its own specific subgenre of electronic music but i kind of feel like that term is the is the umbrella term for all of them and then down from that you have the major genres of electronic music you have uh techno which most people would call normal people would call all of it techno um but techno is a very specific type of electronic music that comes from detroit and has a four on the floor kick drum beat so uh, 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 like everybody's used to hearing with electronic music. Um, and then you have house music, and that is the most direct descendant of disco, funk, and soul. And that is also a four-on-the-floor style of music that comes from Chicago. And it typically has many more human elements, like there's more singing in it, there are more real guitars or basses in it, more real recorded drums, less synthesized stuff. That's a generality because so, house by itself has huge amount of subgenres um, but techno is like more electronic -y, more bloops and beeps and and buzzes and and machine noises in techno house has kind of a more human element to it um, trance uh, is also a floor four on the floor beat but usually with a whole lot of synthesizers may or may not have some big high flying top top line vocal um, usually if you would use the words astral or celestial 
to describe the sound of the music, that's probably trance, if you would call it, if you would use either of those words uh, or similar words to kind of describe the vibe. Um, there's drum and bass, which is a breakbeat, um, but really fast. And then there's breaks, which is a more normal speed breakbeat. I am sure that I am forgetting a few things, but those are kind of like the major genres. And all, all of those are dance music. And then down from each of those, there are many, many subgenres. And that is largely out of a function of how the music is consumed. And that there's kind of a chain of recognition of like when, so like if you like electronic music, you go to something, they play electro, some DJ plays electronic music. You will have no idea what any of those tracks are. You, there's no, you can't go ask the DJ very easily. There's no good way to know, and you know, what is the track? And if it doesn't have a vocal, good look, good luck, even ever looking it up, uh, finding an instrument, what is the name of some instrumental track I heard at some party or club or festival or something like you, you will never know unless you, it's really big and you happen to hear it. Um, so the way it's consumed is the consumer who likes music, who's just a fan and enjoys it, uh, ide ultimately identifies DJs whose music they like. The DJs, will, their, their most fundamental function is to choose music. They also mix it. They also can scratch and do turntableless stuff. And there's lots of stuff they can do over and beyond that. But the most basic function of a DJ is to choose music that they think the audience will like and to recognize what the audience will like and give them stuff that they would like, whether they knew they would like it or they didn't know they would like it, but give them stuff that they will, that they ultimately like. Um, so, uh, kind of forgot where I was there. So, uh, anyway, so people, oh yeah. So, so people identify DJs as like, this is the source of music I like. And then the DJs are connected usually to specific labels. And so then you might go, okay, well I like this DJ. And then there's these other DJs who have released music on this same label. Maybe I would like that music too. And so sound gets up kind of gets kind of def defined by the, the, the playing of the DJ, the label that releases it. And then the genre that that's associated with. And that's kind of how a consumer comes to identify and pick, you know, and consume the electronic music that they want. So for me specifically, I make house music, but not just regular house music. It is, um, I call it tech house, which is kind of like it's house, but a little bit more of the techno sound palette. So, oh, okay. so con consuming the music, uh, the, 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 you know, that kind of chain from, you know, people identify via DJs and labels, what are they like? Cause you don't usually know the name of the song or the producer. So the kind of music that I make very specifically is um, I say I make tech house, which is like house music, uh, but with a little bit more of the techno electronic -y feel. Um, and, and, and that's not even completely accurate. I say it's tech house because there are actually several subgenres that I could call it. I have a genre problem. Like it's hard for me. I, I make the stuff that I make and it's really hard for me to make something that fits more neatly in the genre box, but that's part of playing the label and release game as you kind of, you kind of have to deal with that stuff. So, uh, in actuality, I think that what I make is like right at the convergence of tech house, electro house and bass house, which is probably large, largely meaningless to most people. But um, it, it's it's like generally real high energy, uh, really try, try to be really hyped up and exciting, uh, intended to be like peak of the night, uh, you know, middle of the night, dirty warehouse party tracks like that. That is totally what it is. That's exactly what it is. And it's it's intended for people to throw down and dance to and it's really fun it's really fun to make it um it, it's been been very 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 enjoyable uh doing that and i've been so happy over this. this is like this is like that serial interest thing right so i i used to produce like 20 years ago for a really short time didn't get anywhere did it for a short time was all self-taught and there was a lot that i didn't get figured out this time around i started up again a couple of years ago and i've been constantly got some there's actually training available got some amazingly to it right there's training and it's really good and uh so i've been working really hard on upping the quality level uh, of the music that i make and i'm not saying it's up at the professional level exactly but i've been i've been trying and uh so over last summer I, I finally started submitting tracks to labels and g mafia records out of brazil has been has, has apparently taken a liking to my music so they've uh, i've got uh, three releases out with them now um last one came out in december next one's coming out you know, fourth one's coming out in february late in february and uh and we're going to be doing a whole some whole this is all new to me and all fun we're going to be doing some some artist management project here in the next over the next few months and so there will be a bunch of you know stupid pictures of me on the internet wearing you know wearing like my g mafia gear and you know pointing and wearing wearing hats and sunglasses and looking you know those stupid pictures that they take of of, of music artists um so that's all going to be really fun so i'm very very excited about that right now i'm excited too man i'm excited oh man let's go ahead and wrap it up um 
folks, where can, uh, let's see, Gabe, where can people find you if they want to train with you or if they want to shoot with you? Yeah. Um, so most direct route is a couple things. So if you are uh, looking at training with me nationally, the class that I have that I offer that I think is, you know, real worthwhile and uh, relatively unique is uh, Pistol Shooting Solutions. Um, you can go to my Eventbrite page, and that's where you sign up and uh, do the registration via Eventbrite. You can get there via my website. If you just go to GabeWhiteTraining.com, um, you can click the Train with Gabe button, and it'll take you to a link to the Eventbrite page, and you can go from there. Um, there's not much on there right this second, but that actually is going to be corrected, I think, uh, well before this is broadcast. So it's whatever it is, January 27th right now, and I'm going to be... Um, one of my projects over the next three or four days here is to get most of my 2023 classes actually set up in, in the computer and open for registration. So I'm going to be working on that. I, I can see I've reached that point where like you, you, you aren't doing a good job doing that stuff yourself and you need to have somebody else do it for you now. I've like, I've reached that point, but I don't have somebody else to do it for me. So I'm all kind, I'm kind of late on that front, but by the time this is broadcast, I will definitely all, there should be a bunch of 2023 classes on my event right page. And if you, are local to the Portland, Oregon area, um, you can look at training with me locally at the Public Safety Training Center out in Clackamas. Uh, but if you're not local, that venue doesn't really work for you. But if you are local, uh, you can definitely, you know, hit me up there and we can, you know, see what we can do for you. So, yeah, that's where. Are you on any socials like Instagram or Facebook? Um, or yeah, so so I'm honestly, I'm a, I'm a like a, I love the people. I want to see my friends, but like I have issues with social media. And when I, when I left my old job and went to work at the, at the current place, I had to quit the internet cold Turkey. Cause it was like a place where it's not going to be good for me to do a ton of internet posting just out of like job security issues. And then also um, I don't have the internet time that I did. I'm not, I'm just not sitting in front of the computer all day. So I kind of had to like quit the, become a, an ex electronic addict, uh, you know, whether I wanted to or not. Um, so, so I have to use the internet now. I have to use those things for the music thing. Cause it's like, it's, it's otherwise it's totally not happening. Like you have to. So if you go, want to go looking for me, um, that's cool. And I can definitely, uh, definitely, you know, be friends with people, uh, on the social stuff. Uh, my name on the social stuff is stuff is leopard step, which is my producer name. So you'll have to look it up that way, but if you want to connect with me, go right ahead. <laughs> I mostly just use it for the music stuff, though. Right on, right on, excellent. And uh, as far as the music goes, how do we how do we get to listen to more stuff like uh, like what you're mixing? I know you're on SoundCloud, right? Yeah, yeah. So so all all you really have to do is look up Leopard Step, and you should you can find it. It is on all the major streaming platforms. You can look it up on Spotify or whatever else. You can if you want to you know buy the track, you can buy it, download it from Beatport. Um, and you can look up leopard step on SoundCloud and I always, you know, have my tracks reposted on my page though. They are, since they're released by the record company, they're on, they're on G mafia's page. I just repost them on mine. Um, and I have a, you know, a website, the website address might change at some point in the future, but it is currently just leopardstep.com. And you can see little, you know, some little animated videos of that, 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 of the artwork that, uh, went with the releases and, and links to links to my other pages there. So easy, it should be easy to find. Okay, I'm gonna put all those links in the description. Cool. Uh, that way, folks can get a hold of you a little bit easier, Thank you. and they can enjoy your music. Thank well, you so much. Really appreciate it. I, I always really, really, uh, it, it's always really fun how many people in the gun world end up liking electronic music. Also, like you know, ask 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 the class at some point, and there's always a couple of people, if not if not several. Yeah. So. Well, Gabe, I'm just honored that you would spend your time with us. Like, thank you a bunch. I really do appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Miko. It's been a real, real pleasure to be on here. Thank you. Absolutely. And folks, thanks again for, uh, for listening. Uh, I know you could have spent your time doing anything. Uh, I'm glad that you spent your time with us. Really do appreciate it. Uh, that means a lot to us. All right, folks. Welcome to Memphis. <laughs>